Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is an awesome thing that your son became poor, indeed horrifically poor, that in him and through him we might become heirs of the world, fellow heirs with Christ and infinitely rich which means that since this inheritance is on its way with lightning speed toward us, we don't need to have it yet. And we can lay our lives down for the sake of others who will then ask, what are you hoping in to live like this? So God, make this plain tonight. I pray that you would um, wean us off the breast of the world And grant that we would become passionate about our future and be content in the hope of glory, which is just so close. Life is a vapor. Some of these young people perhaps will not live out the year. Others will live another 50 years. It is so short either way. And then forever. What an inheritance we anticipate. So God, come now and revolutionize our affections because that's what drives our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So let me set the stage for where we're going in this last message. The first and big point has been that God is God and, and displays his godness as the main point of the universe. He does everything he does from creation to consummation, indeed before creation and after the second coming in order to make much of himself, to continually lift up his beauty, lift up his excellence, lift up his power and all of his attributes. And that's good news because we were made in his image to enjoy him. And his love for us is most ultimately the gift of himself. So you have texts like Second, First uh, Peter three eighteen, Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So what was Christ doing in loving us on the cross? He was dying in our place. Why? That he might bring us to God, because that's eternal life, that's joy, that's satisfaction, that's what we're made for. The reason you can stand on a cliff and feel insignificant and alive and satisfied is because you weren't made to be big, you were made to know big, see big, love big, be satisfied by big, and your heart expands. Get near to God or near to some, some pointer to God, your heart expands, and as your heart expands to draw it in, you feel, that's what I'm for. Just forget about little old me and uh, Josh and I, who's traveling with me, were talking in the lobby of the hotel down in Sydney the other night, and, and we pictured Jesus coming and sitting down beside us and saying to us, I really love you guys, and I'd like to spend the evening with you. That'd be okay? Because I, I, I will be doing a few things. I mean, I'll, I'll do my own thing. You don't have to worry about me. Um, and we would hear the words, I love you. Now, we, we could spend the whole evening saying, he loves us. He loves us. (laughs) Look at this. He loves us. And we could just talk about that all night and never look at him. We could do that. We could let our joy terminate on our being loved, which is what millions of evangelicals do around the world. All they talk about is we're loved. We sing about it. We sing about it. And say, but what is it? What is it to be loved? And my answer is, to be uh, so uh, accepted and so forgiven and so justified and so reconciled and so transformed that I can now forget about little old me and I'm watching him all night. And he's picking up little children and he's touching lepers and he's making bread out of a loaf to feed 5,000 and he's walking on water and I'm spending all night long saying, look at that, that's amazing. That's amazing. You're amazing. That's what I want to do all night long. 
You're amazing. Not, oh, look, I'm loved. I'm loved. Woo! I'm loved. I must be something. What a sad way to spend the evening with Jesus. You see the difference? It's just, it is so different whether you, you are still in the self-mode that you are the bottom of your joy or whether Christ has become the bottom of your joy. And his love for you is not to make much of you ultimately, but to enable you to enjoy making much of him forever. So that's where we were this morning. And the implication of that is that God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him so that you should pursue your joy in him 24-7 till the day you're dead and then forever also. Never, ever, ever stop trying to maximize your joy in God. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can't get fuller than full. You can't get longer than forever. There isn't anything better than God. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. It can't get any better. Therefore, set your soul to pursue that with all your heart. Because when you do that, when you treasure him like that, you make him look good, really good. And whatever else you treasure beside him, you make it look good, like the rose story. It was just an illustration horizontally of what is true vertically. Now, here's tonight's question, and, and then I'll tell you the point. The question is, seems, Piper, that if you persuade people to, to, to go after their pleasure all the time, you're going to produce a, a really introverted, ingrown indifferent kind of church and the world can just go to hell in a handbasket as far as they're concerned because they've got their God, they've got their satisfaction, they cross their legs under a tree and be happy until he comes. And, and who cares about the suffering and the injustices and the horrors of the world? That would be a, a good question to ask, really good. And my answer to it is no... Uh, it does not produce that kind of church. And um, the reason it doesn't is because love is n not just going to flow from, but I'm going to argue is going to be thrust out from hearts that are satisfied in God. I'm, the, tonight's thesis is you, you not only should love people out of the satisfaction you have in God. You can't love people if you don't pursue your fullest satisfaction in God. Which sounds like I said last night, counterintuitive, that unless you pursue, pursue your joy, unless you pursue your joy in God to the fullest, you can't be a person for others. You can't love others. That's tonight's point. And to make that point, uh, we're going to spend all of our time in the Bible. So the text that was just read is the most important on this point. And if you have a Bible, you can go there with me. Otherwise, listen carefully to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll read verses 1 through 3 or 4. And then jump down and pick up verse 8 because of a word in verse 8 that we need to make sense out of what's going on in verses 1 to 3. So here's what I'm looking for. And I know it's here. That's why I'm preaching on it. But once upon a time, I was looking in the Bible to see what is love. Because if I can't show you that the last two messages, last night and this morning, produce love for people, hurting people, unlovely people, suffering people, people who are being treated unjustly, um, cantankerous people. If I can't show you that love is making you a person for others, you, you probably should conclude something's defective. Something's defective in what he's told us. It sounded kind of right, but mm, uh, it, if it doesn't produce love for people, and you know that's right because Paul said very plainly in 1 
1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Paul's aiming at love. Uh, it is the more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I am nothing. All of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. So you've got a litmus paper, a litmus test. If you, if you put it in the Piper teaching to see and pull out like the, lo the love litmus paper and say no love for people, you should just say something's wrong. Something's wrong. So I must, I must give an account before I, I drive back to the airport tonight and get on the plane tomorrow morning, uh, I must give an account of why I think if you really buy the last two messages, if God applies them to your heart, you will become an unusually risky, um, sacrificial, generous, outgoing person for others. And the world will wonder, where'd that come from? And then you can talk about it. So here we are, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians, verses 1 to 3. Here's the setting. You need to know this. Um, Achaia is the lower part of Greece where Corinth and Athens are, and Macedonia is the northern part of the peninsula where Philippi and Thessalonica are. Paul has um, been there, and he's writing to the people down here, to the Corinthians, that's why it's called Corinthians, and he's writing to them, and he's telling them that he's going to come and he's going to take an offering, take up an offering, and the offering is for the poor in Jerusalem, and all of chapters 8 and 9 are motivation to get this offering to be as big as it can be, and one of the ways he motivates them to give is by telling the story of what happened in Macedonia, that's Philippi and, and the other churches, so that's the situation, and here's what happened in Macedonia, and I want to know what love is and where it comes from. So you see if you see love here. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. So the first thing he says is up there in Philippi and Thessalonica and, and Berea and those churches up in the northern part, the grace of God came powerfully. Now, what did it do when it came? For in a severe test of affliction... So when it came, affliction came with it. Paul said in every church, according to Acts 14, uh, 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. So Paul taught everywhere. Discipleship 101 was, you believe in Jesus, things will get worse. That's, that was in a sense, you, if you're discipling, discipling anybody, that should be near the front end of your story. In fact, probably it should be before conversion because Jesus said to those who wanted to know, count the cost, count the cost. You, you shouldn't start even building a tower if you don't think you can finish it. So, for a, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, so now we have... On the front side of this abundant joy, affliction, and on the back side of this abundant joy, poverty. So when grace came down, affliction went up and poverty didn't go away. This is one of the reasons I think the prosperity gospel is a mistake. Christ is not honored if you make him the butler that brings to Christians the same gifts that the world gets happy about. And you just have a different butler bringing the meal. We'll give you a meal of prosperity. The world gets a meal of prosperity. They're both happy, and Jesus gives it to you, and hard work gives it to them, and that's the difference. I think that's blasphemy. Jesus doesn't bring us, by his grace, the same meal that the world Enjoys. If, if you buy into a religion that is selling Jesus as a means to be happy on the basis of the same things that makes the world happy, you're buying into another religion. The, there is a new ground of your happiness in Christianity. It's called Jesus. Whether you die or live, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're afflicted or not. So you can see why I hate the prosperity gospel. Okay, that was a parenthesis. 
But here it is. Here it is. Grace came in verse 1. Affliction, a test of affliction came. Abundant joy rose up. Poverty, extreme poverty, it says, didn't go away. And, and the result is this joy, this abundance of joy, sandwiched between affliction and poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is an amazing story. This is what I want to be like, and I want you to be like. The world cannot account for this kind of crazy behavior. Afflictions are increasing. Why would you want to believe in him then? And poverty is not going away. Why would you want to believe in him then? Because abundant joy is rising, which must mean the joy isn't in the absence of affliction and the absence of poverty. It must be somewhere else. Where is it? In. What's it in? Grace. God's grace came down. And what did it give? It gave God. It gave God. It gave the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It gave revelation of the Son of God. And it gave to that end forgiveness of sins and justification and the removal of wrath and reconciliation with God and friendship with the Almighty and the hope of eternal life. And yes, we're going to have affliction. And yes, we may still have poverty. But look what we have. Look at this treasure. There's the joy. That's Christianity. That's a really good message for the whole world, whether it's rich Australia or, or poor Afghanistan or pick your poor country. I don't think rich Americans should go to poor countries and promise them gold rings and lots of cars and your wife will never miscarry and your pigs will never die and you won't ever get malaria. Just come up and, and believe and give me lots of money so I can go home and have a TV ministry. I think we should go and preach like this and tell them maybe affliction will come and it will get worse. That is certainly the case in the Muslim world and in the poorer countries. Maybe your poverty will remain for a generation or two. Verse 4, no, 3, for they gave, this generosity that overflowed, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In other words, they're poor, they're afflicted, they're thrilled, and they beg, please take another offering from us. Please pass the plate again so that we can give more to the poor in Jerusalem because we cannot not love given how happy in God we are. Given what God has given us in himself, we cannot not love. Now, the reason I'm using the word love, and I I don't want to import it here and say this is love without any textual warrant, is verse 8. I say all this not as a command. In other words, I'm not trying to twist your arm and use apostolic force to get you to be generous. But here's here's the way I want it to work. I want to prove by the earnestness of others, namely those Macedonians that I've just described to you, that your love also. So now I've got the word love. And when he says your love also, he means their love, now your love. Their love, now your love. Now I have a textual warrant for calling verses 1 to 3 love. And it is. So now if if this were a classroom... I would, I would require that you write down, give me on the basis of verses 1 to 3 and 8, a definition of loving people. What, do, what is love on the basis of these verses? And you write it down. Now, here's mine. I'll give you two, maybe. Uh, one is simple and the other is more complex. The, the simple one goes like this. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. 
No, just, I hope you can just see that just, that's read right off the verse. There's nothing complicated about that at all. It's straight out of the verse because even the word overflow is right there in verse 2. Their abundance of joy, so love is the, and their extreme poverty, it overflowed, see that in verse 2? Overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So here they're poor, they hear the story, there's some really needy saints down there, would you want to share to relieve some of that need? And they say, oh yes, we would, and that yes, we would, and the giving is overflow of something. What's it overflow of? Joy. This is joy. This is joy. And so my, my definition, and it's called love in verse 8, and therefore my definition is that love, here, here, I want to help you. I want to help you. I don't like the stories I'm hearing about how horrible it is in Jerusalem. I want to help you. It's love. If it is the overflow of joy in God, in grace, from verse, from verse 1. So that's my definition of love. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which, which now de- defends, supports, explains the thesis of tonight that you cannot love people if you don't pursue your fullest joy in God? If you come to this text and say, all that matters is giving the money to the poor, period. That's love. I would say, well, you can say that, but that's just not in the text. And we're going to see a lot more texts that show you God would not be impressed if you did not give out of the overflow of joy in him. Man probably would have become your God at that point or the approval of others or some other human motive that has nothing to do with your satisfaction in the all-sufficient God. The other definition that I said was a little more complicated is this. And the reason I, I come up with this is because the word overflow even though it's used right here in the Bible, could sound a little bit too passive. Like it's just easy. It just bubbles over. You know, sacrifice and risk and letting goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. It just sounds easy. It's just like fill up a cup, it just rolls over and... And we all know that's not the way we experience love, especially painful love. Doing, doing good to people who don't like you, hurt you again and again. So I, I, I'll use some different language. Love is the expansion. Now, that word I'm choosing because you're pushing behind it. There's a pushing behind it. In your heart, your will, your mind, I'm, I'm pushing it somewhere. Love is the expansion of my joy in God into the lives of others so as to include them in it. So what, the reason they were giving to the poor in Jerusalem is because they were hearing the poor in Jerusalem, their lives are threatened, their faith is threatened, and you want to encourage them and help them at spiritual levels and physical levels. And so you're giving because this, this joy in you, you're pushing it. You're pushing it through money towards them. Maybe you wrote some really wonderful little notes to go with it about God and about hang in there and we love you and, and you sent the notes and you're pushing it because your goal is for your joy to go there and to reach, get its arms around them and pull them in because when my joy expands to get somebody else in it, it's bigger. I'm a hedonist. I'm always after bigger joy. Always. And it's bigger joy in God. And the reason this is not compromising that is because the joy I want for them is joy in God. I get in these arguments with people at my church, not so much anymore, but there was a season when they said, John, if if I go to build a well in a place that has only filthy water and people are getting eye diseases and dysentery from it, and I go there and provide that water, I have loved them uh, 
I'm going to say well, but I didn't want to say it, but I couldn't think of another word. I have loved them well, whether they believe or not. And, and I say, that's true. I'm not saying your practical expressions of love will convert them. What I'm saying is the pressure from your soul is for that. If you are not pushing out from your joy in God to draw a community of, of diseased people into your joy in God, you're not loving them. I don't care how much disease is healed. Let them go to hell. That's not love. So there are a lot of arguments there. Now, did you get it straight? I am not saying that you must succeed in converting them. You may spend five years there or a lifetime there and not succeed in including them in your joy. I'm saying that's your passion. That's your goal. If you don't care that others be drawn into your joy in God, you probably don't have any because you know it is so good to not care that they have it is to not love them. So I, I really do not like at all stresses on social action and social engagement that does not care about people's salvation. I think it is worldly and demonic and, and hypocritical. Because if you know God, if you have experienced verse Two of Second Corinthians 8, and affliction has increased, and poverty hasn't gone away, and grace came down, and joy came up, and you're going to send money to the, the poor in Jerusalem. You want that money to be a big expansion of your joy to get around them and draw them into it, and it will grieve you if they go to hell. If they never taste what you've tasted in the forgiveness of sins and justification and eternal life and reconciliation with God and joy full and forever in His presence, you say, yeah, but I loved them because I gave them water or food, baloney. You didn't love them. If your heart is not going after their everlasting joy with you, with you. So... My answer to what love is from this text is either you can call it it's the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. I think that is perfectly biblical right out of verses 1 and 2. Or you can say love is the, the, the costly, grace-enabled grace expansion of my joy through practical all kinds of ways that people need help, through that to get, to get our love and our joy around them so that they're drawn into it. Because when they experience joy in God and I experience their joy in God, my joy in God gets bigger and I'm a hedonist and I want maximum joy in God. The more people I can draw in to my joy in God, the bigger mine gets. So I could just quit now and uh, we'd say, okay, I made my, my case, which I think I have, but I don't think it works that way. I think God um, maybe gets you started in the first 15 minutes, and then some other text just might do it for you. So we're going to just keep going on texts. Go over to the other page. In my Bible, it's just across the page, chapter 9, verse 7. Let's just confirm that we're on the right track. You know, sometimes uh, I think it's easy to overinterpret a text, and a way to test whether you've overinterpreted a text that is drawn more out of it than is really there is to see whether what you just got out of it is in the nearby vicinity and said some other ways. And so check this out. This is chapter 9. He's still trying to motivate giving. Um, maybe start at verse 6. The point is, this is chapter 9, verse 6, 2 Corinthians. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly... So I'm collecting money to go down for the poor, and you can sow sparingly or you can sow uh, richly. Whoever sows sparingly <coughs> will um, reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not, 
twisting your arm, just like he said back in chapter 8. They gave of their own free will, that is, without any external pressure or constraint of any artificial kind. He's trying to awaken something inside of them that makes them give joyfully. And so he says in verse 7, each one must give not as he is, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. So if you buy into an ethical theory that says it's giving that counts and the cheer is ethically irrelevant. It's, it's, it's okay, you know, it's nice to like what you do and to want to do what you do and to find joy in giving to the poor, but it's not ethically essential. I say to that comment, you're sinning because when God says in verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver, and you say back, um, I think you can be indifferent to what God finds as uh, worthy of love. I just think that's sin. That's the definition of sin. To, to say to God, you may love cheerful givers, but we're just going to give. We, we don't care that you love cheerful givers. We won't pursue what you prefer. I call that sin. That's the definition of sin. So I, I would say on the basis of verse 7, you don't have any option. You, you must be happy in your giving, which just takes me right back to verse 2 of chapter 8. How does it happen? It just happens because grace showed up in Macedonia. God's grace, God's almighty grace Joy isn't something you can make happen. This is why Christianity is a miracle. You should feel desperate if you're not happy in generosity right now because you can't make that happen. You say, you're telling me to do something I can't control. Absolutely, I'm telling you to do something you can't control. You must be born again. You must have the Holy Spirit. Miracles must happen in our life. Every morning a miracle has to happen in my life. The Christian life can't be lived except by the power of Almighty God. These texts are calling on us to experience things we cannot control. You can't turn on and off the happiness of your life. You can't turn on and off cheerfulness in giving. If you want an iPad more than you want to give your tithe, you can't push a button like tithing. It's a miracle. It's God. What you do is say, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so out of sync with your heart this morning when I should be loving to give to support this ministry. I love this church. And here I'm just craving this toy over here so much so I don't want to give my 25 or $50 or what I'm, it would be just so right to give. I'm sorry. Restore to me the joy of my generosity, oh, God, and release me from this bondage to the love of stuff. That's the way you live your Christian life. You can't make it happen and, and hopefully God will show up either before the plate gets there or while you're writing the check. So 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Um, before I go to another set of texts, let me make sure I insert something I wrote down here, lest I be misunderstood. Um, I'm saying that cheerfulness, 9-7, or joy, 8-2, and you can use other words, contentment, satisfaction, um, pleasure, happiness. I want to make sure before I go on that you understand that when I use those words, I don't mean a kind of experience that is incompatible with sorrow and pain. That is, sorrow and pain and this kind of joy exist together in one's soul at the same time, often. I'm talking about a spiritual joy produced by the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace. This is not something we produce. This is something God produces. It's a kind of miracle. 
It, it coexists with affliction on the front of the verse and poverty at the back of the verse. So it's not rooted in those things. It's rooted in God. And that's why it's the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't make it be rooted in God. The Spirit roots it in, in God. So here's some texts that make plain that. Weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. And if you know more than 10 people, there's somebody weeping and somebody rejoicing all the time, which means your heart is doing both all the time. At least in the ministry, that's the way it is. You have a church of more than 30 people, somebody's going to be weeping and somebody's going to be laughing, and you're called to be empathetic with both of them in your heart. Romans 9, 2, Paul says of his kinsman, his Jewish kinsman, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for those who are lost, these Jews who are lost. That's Romans 9, 2. Did you hear those two words? Unceasing anguish. Now, Paul is the one who said in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always. That would be unceasing And again, I say, lest you misunderstand, I say rejoice. And he said in 1 Thessalonians and Ephesians 5, give thanks in all things and give thanks for all things. And now he's saying, I have unceasing anguish in my heart for my kinsmen according to the flesh because they are cut off from Christ and perishing. So it is possible to have anguish in your heart and be rejoicing simultaneously. If that, if that seems utterly foreign to your experience, you're just too young. Your, your mom hasn't died yet. And I say that just because that's where I tasted it, I think, most deeply first when I got that phone call when I was 28. And my brother-in-law called me from, from South Carolina. I was in Minnesota. My mother and dad were in Israel on a tour, they were the tour guides to see all the wonderful biblical sites and a, and a, a van with lumber on top smashes in the front of their bus and my mother is killed instantly by these missiles of lumber coming through the, through the front of the bus and my dad is very seriously injured. So the phone call I get says, John, I got bad news. Okay, Bob, what? Your mom is dead. And I don't know if your dad's going to make it. Take about three more minutes to get as many facts as he has. And my little two-year-old Karsten is pulling at my leg saying, Daddy's sad? Daddy's sad? And I hang up. I say to Noel, Mama's been killed in a wreck. And Daddy, I don't know what's going to happen. So just let me be alone for a while. And I go back and I kneel down at our double bed and cry for two hours. Just cry. And while I'm crying, just heaving with sobs, I, I had joy in many ways. The simultaneity of joy. She was an awesome mom, and I thanked God for her. She was a believer and went straight to heaven. From what I heard, she didn't have to suffer much at all. It was instantaneous. Um, and and there, there were three or four other things that I could focus on. And so I saw, I looked inside my soul. You know, if you cry long enough, you, the tears dry up and you just are heaving these empty, I mean, these uh, dry heaves. And, and, uh, and you can kind of watch yourself do it and wonder what's going on. And you see yourself happy and utterly devastated at the same time. So... I, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if nothing has ever entered your life of that kind so that your soul has, has somehow managed both, then it will come. If you're a Christian, it will come. If you're not, then you, you will be devastated without, without joy, probably. Or 2 Corinthians uh, eleven twenty eight. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul talked about this unbelievable pressure on him of all the churches. He bore it. He he was the kind of the buck stopper apostle and everything just stopped right here and he carried it day by day. Or 2 Corinthians 6.10, 
sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So all of that just to say when I speak of joy, I hope you, you taste something really unusual. It's not a kind of rah, rah, praise God anyhow, put a smiley face on, communicate a lot of crappy inauthenticity to people. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something really profound here. Affliction is increasing, poverty is not going away, and joy is just exploding in our hearts. That's what I'm after. And this hurts. And this is grievous. I can't buy all the Christmas presents for my kids I'd like to get. Not like those other folks who don't follow Jesus and seem to prosper. So I don't prosper. They prosper. Their kids get everything they want. and My kids don't. That's grievous. And this hurts. And I am thrilled with God. That's what I'm after. And that's what I would like you to be like. Let's go to chapter 20 of the book of Acts. This is the final um, message of Paul to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He's uh, called them down to Miletus, and he met them on the beach down there, and he's giving them a short speech, and he ends the speech with an amazing incentive for how to love their people, how these elders should love their people. Now look at this motive and see if this motive doesn't sound like what we've seen in Corinthians. Uh, Verse 35 of Acts chapter 20. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. Okay, so he's saying love these weaker saints and and if, if you have to work with your hands so that if they can't, pay you, you can still keep serving them, just like I have by making tents. Help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So he's telling them a motive here. When it's hard to help the weak, remember something, remember Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So if you give, remember, there's a blessedness coming back to you in the giving. So you are extending your joy to the weak, working hard for them in order to draw them in to your joy in God and grow them up into Christ and meet their practical needs and help them get on the way. And, and when you do that, just know this, remember this, there's a blessing, there's a blessing coming to you. You're going to be happier or more satisfied or richer, or deeper, or stronger. There's a blessing coming back. Now, I spent three years in Germany working on a degree and uh, it was on, my, my dissertation was on love your enemies. The early Christian, um, Jesus' command to love your enemies and the early Christian ethical teaching. And, and I spent three years reading articles and books about motivation and love. And I got so weary of this because I read over and over again things like this. I could give you exact quotes. If you do good for others, rewards will come to you. But if you do the good for the reward, you have ruined the goodness of the good deed. I read that everywhere. It comes from Immanuel Kant. And I'm so glad that I grew up in a fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christian home, and I just smelled That's just not biblical. And this is a key verse just to show you that it's not. Because if that were true, in other words, if you do your good deed toward the weak, if you try to help the weak not for the reward, this text would have to read, in all things I have shown you by working hard in this way, You must help the weak and you must forget the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
That's exactly what it would have to say. Because Paul, if Paul says to you, now, as you're going to do the good deed, remember, remember, blessing is coming to you. Then he's just wrecked it, right? He's ruined the good deed. He's just pressing the corrupting influence of reward into your head. I just didn't buy it. I don't care how many PhDs are behind their name, how many fat books they've written, how many philosophers agree with them. I just say, baloney, baloney, baloney. I go with the Bible. Because the Bible says, if you want to help the weak and it gets hard, remember something. Remember something. Our Lord Jesus said, you're going to get a blessing from this. Now, let me, let me give you a story, almost like the Rose story, to illustrate this. I'm a pastor, and I am called upon to, to, to respond to emergencies at times that are very inconvenient sometimes. So I get a phone call. I'm just making this up. This has really happened in various ways, but I'm, I'm just creating a situation. Um, a phone call, 8 o'clock, I'm playing with my kids, and it's playtime, and, and I haven't had it for several days, and I should be there with my kids, and Mabel, 85 years old, just had a heart attack, and, and the family would really like me to come because they don't know if she's going to live. Okay, be right there. Abbott Hospital, five-minute drive from my house, not a problem. I can be there, but sorry, kids. Uh, Got to go, and I don't want to go. So I'm not in a frame of loving, loving the weak and loving the needy and poor. I'm, oh, I'm not overflowing. My joy in God is not overflowing towards Mabel. I'm resentful towards this phone call because there's other staff they could have called, you know. This is a really bad attitude. So I'm in the car, and I'm driving there, and I'm, I'm, I'm confessing. Because I know my own theology, right? I'm confessing my sin and, and I'm saying, oh God, I, this, I'm not going to be useful here if I don't get my heart right. So please come and restore to me the joy of my ministry and the, and the joy in you that Mabel is going to need right now. The family's going to need me and I got to be there and my heart's not right. And I'm, now I'm in the elevator and I'm crying out to God and and uh, I go in the room, nobody's there, maybe they're downstairs getting something to eat, and Mabel's got tubes in her nose, and her eyes are closed, and I have no idea how she is, and I walk over, I'm still praying, God, help me to love this woman well, and help her into heaven if that's where she's going. And I put my hand on her arm, and she opens her eyes, and she says, oh, pastor, this is what the old people always say, she says, oh, pastor, you didn't need to come. I mean, the young people say, about time you came. <laughs> and old people are just gracious. They don't expect much. And young people are demanding, expect everything. And... <laughs> but she's not. She, she's just over my eyes. Oh, Pastor, you didn't have to come. Now, what if I said, I know I didn't have to come, and I didn't want to come. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's my duty to come. Get that Rose story, Rose story. Now, we're not illustrating worship this time. What I'm trying to illustrate here is that when I say it is more blessed to give than to receive, I am not corrupting love. I'm defining love because if I said that to Mabel, Mabel, I know, I know I didn't have to come and I didn't want to come. I'm here because that's what pastors have to do. I'd rather be at home with my kids she would at that moment not feel especially cared for, right? She, she would feel a little, oh, well, I'm sorry, you know, for being. Um, and she should be, because, because the, the right answer, and, and, and I just bear witness at, at age 65 that more often than not, and I would say usually, God in his mercy to me, a sinful pastor, has either at the elevator the door or the arm touch given me affections for my people. He's just given them to me at that very moment. So my, my answer could be truthful. He says, oh, pastor, you didn't need to come. I say, Mabel, you know, 
one of the great joys of my life is sharing my faith, my hope, my joy with you in, in this crisis. And I don't know how you're doing. How are you doing? I mean, I don't know, but I, I would love to be able to let some of my confidence in God and joy in God spill over onto you so, so you and I could get big in happiness together. You know, say it, something like that. And she's been in my church long enough to know, you know, that's my language. And, and, uh, and I think at that moment she would feel really, really loved. She wouldn't say, like I said, my wife wouldn't say, oh, pastor, all you ever think about is yourself. You know, you're just wanting to do what makes you happy, which I do. That's why I'm here. At least starting at that point, that's why I'm here. Duty got me this far. If I had carried through only with duty and no joy, she wouldn't have felt very cared for. So why is my wanting my own blessing in caring for Mabel loving to her? Why is it loving to her? And here's the reason. Because the reward that I want, the increase of my joy in God is a joy that I want her included in. That's why it's love. So if, she's, if she wants to get feisty with me and say, so I've heard you preach, Pastor. You just really want to be happy here, right? You, you want to get your joy really big by visiting me. So how's that love for me? My answer, I wouldn't have a problem answering that question. I'd say, the reason I want to be happy here, Mabel, is because your joy in God at the point of near death will make my joy bigger. And I really, really want you included in my joy. I want you and me to go to heaven together. I want you and me to depend on God together. That togetherness is a bigger thing than just me being happy in God. And I want you in it. And I think, I think she would say, oh, okay, I, I'm, I'm glad you want me in your joy. And that's what you can say to everybody you work with. You can say, I want your joy in my joy. Because if your joy in God would join me in enjoying God, our combined joy would be bigger and I want to be as happy as I can be. And your inclusion in it would make me happier in God than if you didn't come. So Acts 20.35, I think, uh, is a strong argument that if you don't pursue your blessing in God, then you can't love people the way you should. Let me take you to one last set of texts. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, first and second, Timothy, Titus, Hebrews. And I'll leave you with this. And I hope you never forget it. I never forgot it when I first saw it. I come back to it over and over again. There is a pattern in chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13. I'm going to take... Ten minutes maybe to show you, and then we'll be done. Um, and the pattern is so clear to make the point this night is about making. I, I don't know of any better place in the Bible to take you. And if you see the pattern, you'll see, oh, this is not an isolated thing. This idea of pursuing your maximum joy in God, God as your supreme reward, is the power and the impulse to love other people, even if it costs you your life. That's what I'm after. That's in these texts, 10, 11, 12, and 13. So that's the pattern I want you to see for yourself so that God can say it to you, not just me. So here we are, chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Okay, just like in Corinth or Macedonia, uh, the grace came down and afflictions increased. So here uh, they were enlightened. That is, their eyes were opened. They saw the truth of Christ. They embraced him and they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So sometimes it wasn't equal. Some people got more harsh treatment and others saw it happening and they had to decide, shall I partner with them and try to help them or shall I go underground and keep my skin safe? Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. 
So they made the decision. When others got thrown in prison, we're going we're gonna to identify with them. We're going to go, take them some food, and befriend them, even if it risks our lives. And look what happens. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering, or it might mean confiscation, of your property. Since, now stop there before I give you the since clause. To get the situation, some of their comrades have gone into prison. Now we've got to decide what we're going to do because we get kids and we got houses. If we go visit them in prison and take them food, people are going to say, aha, they're one of them and so let's throw them in too. What would you do? Maybe they had a prayer meeting and they asked God and, and what, whatever, whatever God did there, they decided we're going. And as they went, they looked over the shoulder, something like this, and they saw their houses being, what, either graffiti or torched or rocks thrown through the window or something. It says the plundering of their properties. People were smashing out the windows, taking their stuff out. And, and how did they experience that? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's crazy. That's the kind of life I want to leave you living. If I could get on a plane tomorrow and think a few of you became like that. You are so committed to loving people that when it costs you your house, you sing. That's just impossible unless... Grace, supernatural grace has come down. Now, where did that come from? I want to know where that kind of human being comes from. Where does that impulse to sing on their way to the prison while their houses are being plundered, where does that come from? And now the last clause is all important. This happened, it says, since... I'm in the middle of verse 34. Since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do those two words remind you of anything? Better and abiding? What, what's the text here? Anybody remember? Psalm 1611. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, better possession, and pleasures forevermore, an abiding one. This is the same reality. This is God saying, you're mine forever in my presence. Is that enough? Is that a treasure enough to sell everything for with joy or to lose everything with joy? And they said, enough. I gave a devotion at Desiring God staff weeks ago and I just said the greatest need of my life is to fall in love with my future more deeply because the reason I murmur I murmur like if the plane is late tomorrow morning I'm going to be likely to murmur you know if the food isn't good on the plane I'm going to murmur if we have a flat tire on the way down to Sydney I'm going to murmur 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 why do I murmur so much I don't love my future enough because, because they were losing their house. Their goods were being plundered. They were on their way to who knows what in prison to care for their friends. And, and they were singing all the way. They weren't murmuring since they knew, they knew that in the future they had a better and an abiding possession. Here's a little story that stuck with me when I read it. John Newton told the story of an American. I don't know why I used an American. This is now what? Newton lived in 1800s, and so this is before cars. And a man was in his carriage going to New York to receive his million-dollar inheritance. And he's in his carriage, and, and the wheel breaks, and he goes clunk, and he's one mile from New York and a million dollars. This is us on our way to heaven. And he gets off and he looks at it and he's just angry. And he walks 
one mile to get his million-dollar inheritance, saying all the way, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. Murmur, murmur, murmur. To get a million dollars. Is he weird? He's weird. That's us. That's me. Because I haven't fallen in love with my million-dollar God. This is where we are, folks. Oh, God, work this in you. May God so open your eyes. Because what a difference you would make in Australia if you were this kind of human being. Let me quickly give you the, the chapter 11. There's 11, 12, and 13. I won't spend this long nearly on all of them. Here's, here's chapter 11, verse 24. Moses, this is, what, 1,300 years before the early church, and the same exact structure of motivation. By faith, 1124, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, refusing rather to be, uh, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. So that's like choosing to go to the prison. than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures. Oh, there are pleasures in sin, but they are so ephemeral. So he calls them fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of the Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How did he do that? For he was looking to the reward. Exactly the same mindset. So God, you're calling me to serve this thankless, murmuring people through the wilderness to the promised land. And there's, there's, this is going to be really hard. I could stay here and be rich as Pharaoh's son. I could be here. And as he considers reproach and difficulty and sorrow and trouble with Jesus, the Christ, for the Christ, and he considers Egypt and he says, fleeting. And how did he make that choice? He looked to the reward. He fell in love with his future. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, here it comes, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Now, this is so serious. Let me, let me see if I can say it in a really urgent way. Beware, beware, beware that anybody trick you into being motivated by a more noble incentive than your Lord Jesus. Like, Oh, I'm going to forget rewards, and I'm going to forget future joy, and I'm not going to do things because I have a reward awaiting for me. If that's the way you're talking, you are belittling your Jesus at the moment when he suffered most for you. This text says that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, and that's exactly what we do. And he's simply joining the church in chapter 10, Moses in chapter 11, Joining them, he was the ground of what they did. So as he was sweating blood for us in Gethsemane and as he was having spikes put through his wrists or hands on the cross, what sustained him was, I'm coming out of this. I'm coming out of this. I have power to lay down my life. I have power to take it again. I will take it again. I'll rise from the dead. I'll ascend. I'll gather an elect from all the peoples of the world. They'll surround me as an innumerable host and praise me forever. That's my joy. And I will endure anything to have that people. Don't ever say, I'm going to be motivated by something more noble or more selfless than my Lord Jesus. This was the highest act of love that has ever been performed, ever will be performed on the face of this planet. And it was motivated by the joy that was set before him, just like chapter 10, verse 34, just like chapter 11, verse 26, and just like the one we're going to close with, chapter 13, verses 13 and, and 14, or maybe start with verse 12. So chap, last chapter of Hebrews, verse, verse 12 of chapter 13. 
So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Now, an immediate application is that that happens for most of you tomorrow um, midday. This is a this is a easy place to be a Christian. It's wonderful, sweet. We're singing together. We're talking together. We're seeing magnificent displays of God's glory. We're hanging out with the people we like to hang out with. This is easy. This is the camp, and it's good to be here. You should be in a camp like this, and then you should leave it. Why? How? Where, where do you get the strength? Let us go with him outside the camp and bear reproach. This is what it will cost you in your workplace. Bear reproach he endured. And here's the ground clause. For here, here in Sydney, we have no lasting city. But we seek a city that is to come. If you don't fall in love with that city, that reward, that treasure, full in his presence, pleasures forevermore, you won't love people. You will not have the resources and you won't have the expanding impulse to get your arms around suffering and thankless people unless your joy in God is being pursued relentlessly. It is a fight till the day you die. I bear witness to somebody who's 40 years older than most of you that it is a fight to the end to be happy in Jesus, to get up in the morning and take the Bible and find him your treasure, reestablish your covenant walk with him, get your roots down deep into him, and then go out into the day operating from confidence that is fixed on the glory that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, and that's the end of my three-part message for you, and I'm going to pray for you now that God would uh, tonight, and with Rory's help uh, tomorrow, just take it down deep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm pleading with you from myself. I, I just, I'm talking about what I've seen in the Bible and what I remain a struggler to experience. We are all on the way. Got interviewed by a guy today who said, are you a happy man? And I said, not as happy as I should be. And every day is a, a struggle to be happy in the right place, to sink the roots of joy down into Jesus and to fix my heart on the joy that is set before me. So God, that's where we are and I pray that you would draw now, draw any unbelievers who are here into this wonderful warfare and draw marginal believers who've been playing games and uh, set a fire afresh, those who are most passionate for you. Make this conference and its ripple effect go for miles and miles and decades and decades and reach not only the, the workplace and the neighborhoods, but also the nations for your great, glorious name. In Jesus' name I pray.